Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So I'm very, very excited about the guests that we have today. I think we're gonna learn a thing or two about creating and scaling a hyper growth businesses. But I guess without further ado, Max Rothers, welcome to the show today. Ah, thank you so much for having me. So how was life in Oklahoma, being born and raised there? Uh, you know, it was a it was a great place to grow up. Uh not a place that I decided to uh, to stay for all that long. I left when I was 18. Um, but you know, it, it, it wasn't that different, I think from, from growing up in, it was a college town. So I think honestly, it reminds me of, you know, Berkeley or Palo Alto. Um, just the summers are hotter and the winters are colder. So why, why did you decide to go to Yale and, and study history? Uh, well, it was a combination of a couple of things. I, I knew I wanted to play soccer in college. Um, and at the time that I applied, Yale actually had a pretty good soccer program. It immediately went downhill. Uh, we won, we won the Ivy league my freshman year. And then have, I don't think we've had a winning season since then, almost over 15 years later. Um, so sort of, I don't know if there was any sort of causal link there. Um, but yeah, things definitely have not gone as well, uh, more recently. And then, um, I also, you know, I, I, I wanted to, to get a really good education. It was something that was important to my parents. It was something that's really important to me. Um, I was, I've always been um, pretty intellectually curious. And uh, history specifically at Yale, I've always been, I've, I've always felt like you can learn a lot from the, the past. Uh, I think history has a, really has a way of repeating itself. Um, and almost everything that's happening today is really some sort of, of replica of something that's happened in the past. And so the better you understand the past, the, the, the better you're able to understand the present. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think that the past always, always projects in, in a way or another in the future. So I think that, uh, you know, just, just as an entrepreneur, from entrepreneur to entrepreneur, I'm sure that you probably relate to reading biographies of, of other founders, how they did it, lessons, yeah. mistakes, and, you know, Absolutely. something you can learn from that. That's all history. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so you did then a little bit of corporate America. You know, it's it's amazing. But I speak with so many founders that that are incredibly successful, like just like yourself, that have been in consulting, 
and either Bain, McKinsey. I mean, it's it's the same the same thing. So, what yeah. what did you learn from from your time at Bain? Um, I think that the most important thing I learned is how to break down a problem into its component component parts and really uh, understand the root cause of of problems and how to reason from first principles to to find solutions. I think something that I say a lot is it's impossible to solve a problem if you don't understand the cause. And I think it's, it's really easy to end up in a situation where you're treating symptoms um, and not actually treating the disease. And I think that's something that, that Bain, and I'm sure the other you know, major consulting firms do as well as they teach you how to really make sure that you're being rigorous, looking at the data uh, and, and really understanding a business problem um, deeply before jumping into to solutions. And I think the other thing that's been really helpful with, from that experience is just the network. I mean, I think we've hired, we're a little over 100 people now, and I think 12 or 13 of them worked at Bain. Many of them were in my start class. Three or four of them were in my start class at Bain. Um, and so the network has been really powerful uh, as well. That's really cool. Yeah, I mean, the network, especially, I mean, I see this because I have a lot of friends as well from, from McKinsey, like how they all know each other is like a small circle and I mean, actually pretty cool. So, so one thing that I saw is that before you actually got started as a, as a founder yourself, you had the experience of really um, ex like being in a rocket ship and that was, that was Square where you were there for almost five years. So, yeah. so how do you land on Square? Because right before that you were at AppDirect like, and, and what, what did you learn at Square? Uh, yes, I, I think it was it was pretty lucky the way I landed there. Um, I I ended up on a soccer team with the COO of Square, um, and you know I it was just total happenstance. Ended up uh, and and actually he's he's one of our investors now at Fair, um, our first board member. His name's Keith Raboy, and uh, he wasn't great at soccer um but hopefully hopefully he doesn't listen to this <laughs> i don't think he would be offended by it um he but he he uh was just an unbelievably smart guy and after the game um mentioned that you know he he was in startups i said that i was interested in startups we ended up getting coffee uh and um learned a little bit more i didn't even know about square at that point um and he, you know, we sort of stayed in touch over the course of the next few months. And that, that ultimately led to when he was ready to, to start hiring, you know, business analysts, uh, people with my background, um, I got the call up and yeah, just really sort of right place at the right time. Um, and then in terms of what I learned there, uh, I mean, just incredibly fortunate to have that experience. I think Square is, is one of those rare companies that started out hot and and really got it right from from day one. We definitely made mistakes along the way, and I think there's a lot to learn from mistakes. But I think that you can also learn a lot from successes. And I tend to think more about the things that Square got right as I'm building Fair um, than I than I do about the things that that Square got wrong. And I think the big things that Square got right were um, number one, having a really clear idea of what the mission, the purpose of the company was, and and that was really um, all about financial inclusion and just uh, leveling the playing field for small business owners. And that was also a mission that I got really passionate about. And, and that, you know, is the mission at FAIR as well. Um, I think I saw the power that technology could have 
um, in improving people's lives, especially small business owners. And the fact that, you know, previous, previous to, to Square, there, in Shopify and some of the, the newer companies, there haven't been as, there's not been that much of a focus um, in the technology industry, you know, outside of Intuit on small business owners. And I think that Square really blazed the trail um, in terms of what's possible there. And, and I think FAIR is, is really uh, continuing a lot of the things that we learn um, in terms of, you know, just creating uh, tools that, that help small business owners compete with larger competitors. And I think the other thing that I learned there um, is the, the, the power of uh, focus on uh, problem solving. I think that, that Square did a really great job of, you know, always focusing on the number one problem that we were facing using data to guide. Jack always called it instrumentation um, and always having instrumentation of understanding, you know, what's going well, what's not going well, uh, and just continually iterating and improving problems. And then the third thing, maybe the most important thing is Square just had this unbelievable culture of innovation um, where it, 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 it sometimes it felt a little chaotic. Um, and I think back on some of those early days and it, it was, there were some pretty wild moments and, you know, sometimes it felt like we, we, we could use a little bit more focus. Um, but I think ultimately that culture of innovation where people weren't afraid to try things and fail, where, where risk taking was encouraged, where really entrepreneurial people were hired and empowered, um, that's ultimately is, is what has allowed Square to continue to innovate and be so successful. And that's something that we have really uh, tried to do uh, at, at FAIR as well, where um, we actually, our customer or our new employee orientation is called Founders Bootcamp, um, where we really, we think of our mission as empowering entrepreneurs, not just with, not just outside the company, not among our customers, where we have small business owners on both sides of the marketplace, but also within the company where we think of everyone here as part of the founding team, um, especially in these, these early days. Um, and, you know, I'm really thankful for the experience that I, that, that, that I was able to have at Square where I was able to work on really early projects like Square Capital. Um, we got that off the ground and I basically put together a pitch deck, went and talked to a bunch of customers and then went and presented to, uh, Sarah Fryer, our CFO, and Jack, our CEO, and they gave us the green light. We got engineering resources. Um, you know, ultimately, we were able to to bring our our head of risk, J, J. Brian Scott, on to lead the project and get that off the ground. And now it's a huge business. And cash was was basically the same way, where we uh, we started out in a small room. It was like ten of us. It, actually, both my co-founders um, were also on that uh, that project in the early days. And there was, there was like a two-year period where it wasn't really working and we just kept being given space to try and innovate. And there was, there was a belief that it would work. And ultimately, you know, cash is now a huge part of, of Square's business. And those really were treated, both of those were treated as startups within Square. Uh, and I think that that's something that we, that's an approach we try to take at FAIR as well, where we're just continually launching new experiments, not being afraid to try new things, not being afraid to make big bets, um, while still maintaining, you know, a focus on the overall strategy, how it all ties together and making sure that we are solving our, our most important problems. Got it. And we're going to talk about, and we're going to talk about what you're up to now at FAIR. Uh, but, you know, it's interesting because 
the way that you talk, I mean, the, the listeners must be thinking like, man, like, did he just say Jack Dorsey? So I got to ask you this because now you're really leading your own thing. And, and at that time, you were really learning from really incredible people. I mean, Keith, uh, we're talking about the guy from PayPal, uh, Kosla. Now, I believe his founders fund. He, I think that was recently announced. Yeah, but, he but, found an open door. So, so one, one of the best operators uh, out there. So if I had to ask you, what have you seen or what are the takeaways from working with someone that has been able to develop mastery uh, at an operator level? And then also, what have been your takeaways from working with and, and, and really reporting to someone like Jack Dorsey, who is, you know, arguably the, you know, many people are calling him the next uh, Steve Jobs and, and one of the best visionaries out there. I mean, what are your takeaways from really uh, working with the visionary that has the mastery and the operator that has the mastery? Yeah, I think uh, Keith and Jack together were a big part of what made Square Square and what ultimately made Square successful. And, and I think that um, a lot of that DNA, two very different approaches to, to, to building companies were brought together at Square um, that I think has proved to be really powerful. And, and we've tried to marry you know, that, those, those two different approaches at FAIR as well. Um, and I think the, the big thing from, from Keith is he is better than anyone I think I've ever worked with at distilling information down to the, the things that really matter. I can remember presenting, you know, work to him and knowing that there was maybe a couple of areas where the analysis was soft or where the, the conclusions didn't feel quite right. And he would always just jump straight to it and, and unravel it and then help to, to build on the thinking. Um, so just the amount of horsepower and the ability to, to synthesize information and then use that information, use those insights um, to, to drive the business forward. Um, when I talk about Square, it was so good at focusing on the most important things. I think that that Keith was really exceptional at that. Um, and, and what then, about Jack? What do you think made Jack so so special? Yeah, and then I think with Jack, um, I mean, his ability to understand the way that people respond to brands and experiences uh, and really having a maniacal focus on that um, is, is really unbelievable. Um, you know, I can remember on cash when we first launched cash, it was this email based product where you had to CC cash at square.com uh, and you'd put the payment amount in the subject line it was a peer-to-peer -peer payment product and super innovative, got a ton of press. Walt Mossberg wrote about it in the Wall Street Journal. You know, we were really excited about it. And almost from day one, Jack wasn't happy with it and, and just felt like it was the wrong approach. He felt like we needed to, to create a native app experience and get it out of email. Um, and it took us probably nine months of him just patiently uh, saying, you know, when are you going to fix this problem? When are you going to fix this problem? And then finally, I, I did a bunch of customer interviews um, where I actually talked to people who are using the product. And sure enough, almost all the problems that people were having were stemming from 
um, you know, them just not uh, having a consistent enough experience trying to send payments over email. Like sometimes the emails would fail. It just was, it was just a very unstructured uh, and, and difficult to use product experience, even though it was really innovative. Um, and so his ability to see that from day one really jumped out. I think a lot of the products that, that he's built have this really impressive, I mean, Twitter, who would have thought, you know, <laughs> that 140 characters sent out into the ether would, would take on this life of its own. Um, and I think he really has that product vision of understanding how people are going to respond, um, both within the experience and then also in, you know, the language that is used and the colors that are used. Um, he's almost like an artist, uh, in the way that he, he builds products and builds experiences. And, you know, I don't know if I've figured out how to do that. I think it's a pretty unique skill, but we've tried to, 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 replicate some of that at least at at fair um and then the thing the thing that both of them were really amazing at um is recruiting uh i think that you know when you look at the management team that jack put together and when you look at a lot of the people that keith hired at square um super impressive keith hired tony Zhu, who went on to to be the ceo and founder of doordash he hired um you know jeff collison who's now our a COO who just joined um, a couple of weeks ago and actually was one of our original co-founders and then went on to lead revenue at Open Door. Um, he hired, uh, he actually hired uh, uh, Adam Hahn, who is now the chief product officer at Instacart. He hired him back at LinkedIn. He just has this really amazing ability to, to identify talent. Um, and then if you look at the executive team that Jack hired, you know, Gokul, Sarah, uh, Francois, just incredibly impressive people, um, both identifying those people and then, and then recruiting them and getting them to buy into his vision. Um, you know, I think that that has a lot to do with what made Square successful and it's their ability to build those great teams. Um, and I think that that's something we've worked really hard, uh, on making sure that so, we, we try to create at, at fair as well. So let's talk about fair. So how, how, did you incubate this idea? Because obviously ideas take some time to, to come to fruition. And, and what was that day, that day like where you said, hey, you know, we got the right guys, the right founders. Let's, let's pull the trigger. Yeah, I think um, the, the, the founders actually came first um, where, you know, originally it was, it was me, Marcelo, Daniele, and then Jeff, who just joined as our, as our who just rejoined as our COO. Um, all four of us worked really closely together at Square, and we felt like we had, you know, really complementary skill sets. Where, uh, you know, I I come from a product background. Um, Daniele comes from a, a risk and security and data science background, and then Marcelo is an, an incredible engineer. He was actually a barometer at Square. Like he he set the hiring bar at Square, which has proven to be a very valuable skill when building out our our engineering team of, of being able to identify uh, top tech talent. And then Jeff is just an incredible operator. Uh, you know, led the retail team at Square, led operations uh, for Caviar, um, great team builder, really understands go to market. Um, and, uh, you know, when, when we were starting out, we felt like we had all the building blocks in place. We all, you know, had uh, entrepreneurial experiences, wanted to start companies. We'd been talking about it for over two years before we all made the leap. And then specifically with this idea, um, 
you know, we went through three or four different iterations um, of, of different ideas. We worked on a, on a car insurance startup. We, <laughs> Marcelo and I spent a few months trying to sell dental drills, uh, which is a very long story that I won't go into, but you can imagine why that didn't work out. Right. Um, and then finally, we started working on this one. Um, and it was almost immediate that it, we knew that it was the right idea. It just felt right almost instantaneously. And I think it was because we were solving a problem we understood really deeply. Um, I had the, we'd had the experience from Square working with small business owners. We really understood the customer. Uh, and then I specifically had the experience um, of introducing the blunt umbrella to the U.S. market. And I saw up close uh, how painful it is trying to get products into stores. Um, and, you know, I saw the pain on the retailer side uh, of, of how risky it is and how much fear there is when bringing on a new product. And so, you know, this idea of being able to, to underwrite the inventory risk and actually allow retailers to, to try products with free returns um, felt really revolutionary. Um, we were just excited about it from day one. And then as we started talking to customers, it, you could just see the look on their faces that we were onto something. You could tell that, that there was a level of excitement. Um, and, you know, I've worked on products that had failed. Uh, you, you probably have never heard of Card Case, and that was a product that I worked on. There's a reason you haven't heard, heard of it. And I worked on products that were successful. And and I had some some intuition around what that felt like when you were talking about something that was really going to work. And this had this had that feeling, you know, that you could just you could just feel it in the room when you were talking to retailers about the idea. And when you came up with this idea, or where you were testing all these different concepts, were you already in Y Combinator, or Y Combinator came after you already had set your your eyes on on this? You know, we we decided to apply to Y Combinator almost like two weeks after we decided on the idea. Um, so it turned out to be a really good forcing function for us to, to really hone in on exactly what the customer pain points were we were trying to solve. Um, the timing was really fortuitous in a way um, and ended up using the Y Combinator application to, to develop you know, the initial hypothesis uh, that ultimately led to FAIR. Um, and then really started testing it. We actually started working full-time on the idea. Um, uh, me, Marcelo, and, and Daniele, Jeff, had left at that point, um, the day that Y Combinator started. Got it. Got it. So then, so then you know, one of the things that, um, that I always say to founders, because there's right now like 450 accelerator programs out there, there's just so much noise on the space about this, and I think that most of them are full of noise. Uh, now, I think that the one that really makes sense is is Y Combinator. So, um, uh, really, I mean, otherwise, you know, probably best to just grab that equity and give it to a bunch of uh, advisors and and good people that can get involved. So, I guess, I guess, what makes Y Combinator so so great? Yeah, I don't have much experience with other accelerators. I, I can definitely talk about what makes what made Y Combinator so valuable for us. I think the first thing is it creates a pace of play where you're, you've got this three month period and you've got, you know, all these other great entrepreneurs that you're, you're working alongside and great advisors. You know, we were working really closely with Sam Altman. Um, he was our group advisor who are just telling you over and over again, talk to customers, 
understand the problem that you're solving, build your product, don't get distracted by anything else. Um, and, and it's almost like you've just got a rail gun where demo, you're pointed right at demo day. Uh, and the only thing that you need to worry about is getting traction, proving product market fit. Um, and for us, that was really powerful. And I think it created this sense of urgency and focus that we've maintained, you know, to this day. And I think there's, there's definitely a bit of selection bias where for sure, you know, great companies apply to Y Combinator. Um, but I think there's a reason why you see so many great companies come out of it. And I think a lot of it has to do with that focus and urgency um, that they help to cultivate. Um, and then I think there's also something to be said for just, you know, having a hundred, 200 of the best investors in Silicon Valley all lined up on one day where you have the opportunity to go and talk to them. You can run a really tight fundraising process. And that's, that's ultimately what introduced us to Alfred Lin. Um, Keith invested in that round, Forerunner, Dream also invested in that round. And, you know, those are amazing investors that I don't know if we would have had the chance to get in front of uh, if we, if we hadn't done Y Combinator. Yeah, no, I I agree. I mean, Alfred is, uh, is really unbelievable. So um, definitely one of the best investors out there and also a great, great person because you want great people to involve. So, so that's sure. fantastic. So, so then that was, that was going to be one of my questions. So in total, how much capital have you guys raised that is publicly disclosed? I think 116 million. 116 right million. One thing that, that kind of like stood out for me was that typically you raise rounds like anywhere between 18 to 24 months. I mean, for you guys, I mean, it was it was unbelievable because you've done two rounds in 2017, two and three rounds in 2018. So literally yeah. in the same year, you did your A round, your B round, and your C round. It's I, I've yeah. never seen something like this. Well, what happened? Yeah, I think um, we were we were pretty fortunate, uh, is what I would say. That the first idea worked, um, which is pretty unusual. Uh, I think. You know, you look at Slack, you look at Airbnb, you look at a, a lot of really great companies. It took them a while to find product market fit. And we just happened to, to, to land, you know, on the right idea from day one. Um, and so the result was that we, we started growing very fast, very quickly. Um, and, you know, then I, I think we also were fortunate to, to move through the different phases of the startup very, very fast where, you know, I think of the startup as the initial phase is really finding product market fit. The next phase is figuring out your business model. And then the next phase is figuring out your growth model. And sometimes those things can happen in concert. They don't always necessarily happen, you know, in that exact order. Um, but for us, they did where it took us, you know, nine months to really have traction where almost from the day that we, had the product built and launched, it, it just took off. Um, and then we were able to raise our series a on product market fit and traction. It took us then another, you know, nine months to, to nail the business model, um, where we were, you know, unit economic positive, uh, and, um, and then almost the, the month that we nailed the business model shifted the focus over to growth and really growing the business. Um, that month we raised our series B and then the, the growth model really took off. Um, and, uh, so we went from doing, 
you know, a million, a little over a million a month in GMV to 8 million a month in GMV in like three months. Uh, and so, you know, that's what led from the B to the C. So when I think about fundraising, I think about it as, as milestones. Um, and, you know, what, what are the milestones that you need to hit to, to reach that next gate um, to feel good that you're going to be able to hit the next milestone, um, you know, whether that's your A, your B, your C, or D, or, you know, becoming a public company. Um, and we just passed through several of those gates uh, on an accelerated timeline. And, and talking about growth, how many employees do you guys have today, Max? Uh, right around 100. Um, I think 106. And why? We had a bunch start this week, so I'm, I'm not sure if it's 106 or 112. Got it. Um, got it. Well, yeah. hopefully they don't get offended, so maybe you can invite them <laughs> or something. So, Max, so why, why Waterloo, Canada for the engineering team? Uh, yeah, <laughs> total uh, luck is what I would say, which is a sort of common theme here. Um, Marcelo, my CTO, uh, has 20 years of software engineering experience. He was really early uh, in the Google office out in Waterloo. He's from Brazil, settled in Canada, got a job at Google. Um, I think he was like employee 20 or 30 in the Google office out there, which is now 500, 600 people. Uh, and then he was the second employee in the Square office out there. And that's actually where we built uh, cash engineering. Um, and that's now, I think, 100 or so people. Uh, and so Marcelo just has this amazing network. He has experience building engineering teams um, out in Waterloo specifically. Uh, and I'm a, I love Marcelo. And so, you know, we, we were actually concerned about it initially um, uh, that we heard from a lot of investors, you know, you can't build a company with, with engineering teams and, and product teams and in a different location. We knew that wasn't true because we did it with cash, uh, cash almost completely remote. So we learned, you know, how to do it and we had confidence that we could do it. What I think we didn't realize um, at the time and why I said it was luck is that it's actually become a superpower for us where um, University of Waterloo is one of the best engineering programs in the world. Um, a lot of people don't realize this, but BlackBerry was built out of Waterloo, I think in large part because they had access to that great talent pool there. Um, and, you know, recruiting engineers in San Francisco is just brutal. We've tried to do it. We've tried to build a small team here. One of the best engineers I've ever worked with, I, I got dinner with him a couple of weeks ago and uh, to try to recruit him. And he said to me, you know, I, I'd love to join, but the company that I'm at right now actually gives me three months off in the winter <laughs> so that I can go moose hunting. Um, oh and it's like, well, that's <laughs> great for you. I don't know that that's going to work for us right at the moment. Um, maybe let's stay in touch. Um, but in Waterloo, you know, you, you just don't have the same sort of, of competition for talent. Um, and, and I really do think that technology companies increasingly are competing in two markets. You've got the market where you've got your customers and then you've got the talent market. And you've got to figure out ways to differentiate yourself in the talent market. And for us, Waterloo has proven to be a huge advantage. Um, you know, we're, we're one of the most successful companies there. Um, and there just aren't that many Sequoia-backed, YC-backed startups that have reached the kind of traction that we've reached out there. Whereas in San Francisco, you know, we've been successful, but there are a lot of other companies here. Um, and, and the ability to stand out there to recruit really great engineers. You know, I think we have one of the best engineering teams um, 
around. And I think that that has a lot to do with Marcelo's ability to recruit out in Waterloo. Yeah, no, and, and, and I think that it makes complete sense. I had a similar experience building my last company here in, in New York City where in one of the interviews, one of the guys, one of the engineers said, hey, is there unlimited vacation? And, <laughs> and, and I was like so shocked because I, here I am coming from Spain. I hear that. And at that point, I said, the engineering team is going to Barcelona. So, <laughs> so, so basically, I did that. And that was a great excuse to have tapas from time to time. But I guess, yeah, I guess yeah. in your... Yeah, that's another nice perk with it. <laughs> for, so, for, for, I don't know, if I, I don't know what, how I compare Waterloo to Barcelona, but... Hey, I'm, I'm sure it has the positives, but I guess I guess in your case and and perhaps the people that are listening I'm, are starting now to think about hey you know maybe the um, maybe the um, the remote or the new location where I don't have to deal with all this competition where people are only staying like for a couple of years and maybe I create like more loyalty by being somewhere else like how like what kind of recommendations or perhaps things that you've learned of of being effective at, at having a remote location like what have you learned? Yeah, I think the number one most important thing, just an absolute requirement, is you need somebody that you can build the team around. And, and that person needs to be pretty special, almost a founder. Um, they need to be able to recruit. They need to be able to lead. They need to be able to, to help make business decisions and translate the business uh, decisions to the engineering team and communicate and, and rally people um, they need to be able to hold people accountable uh, and create results. Like it, it, it really does take a pretty special person to be able to build an office around. So I'd say that is the number one requirement. I think it's pretty important that they already have a network there because the, solving the cold start problem is really hard. Uh, it was difficult for us even you know the first year or so with Marcelo's network to, to pull people in. And then the second thing is that you really have to invest in the technology and the processes to, to make it feel uh, less like a remote team. Um, you know, we've invested really heavily in Google Hangouts. Um, we have big TVs, cameras in every room with really high quality sound systems. We, we spent a lot of money on our all hands setup so that it really feels like when we do our weekly all hands that everybody is all together, um, you have to be willing and ready to make those investments. And then you just have to be really good at communicating, um, which in a way I think becomes an advantage as you scale, because, you know, a lot of the problems that you run into as you scale are, you know, things that used to work when you're all in a room together, stop working. And, uh, and, and so you sort of have to solve those communication scaling problems earlier on. Um, and then you just have to travel. You have to be willing to get on a plane uh, and go and visit one another because th there's really no replacement for, for some time spent together. We try to get our product teams together at least once every six weeks. I'm out in Waterloo uh, every other month, just about. I'm actually going to be out there uh, next week. Um, and so it's just, it's, it's, it takes an investment. It takes some sacrifice. Um, but I do think it's worth it if you can, if you can figure out you know, the right leader to build around. Makes sense. So, so Max, in a world where the vision of FAIR is fully realized, what does that world look like? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, at a high level, our mission is, is powering the shop local movement. Uh, and, and so I think when, when I think about the, the future that we try to create, we always say the future is local. That's one of our, our, uh, our taglines because 
we think that, you know, 10 years from now, um, local retailers are, are making a comeback. Um, you're already seeing the beginnings of it, um, where, you know, for the past, for the past a hundred years, local retail has had, had its back up against a wall, um, trying to compete with Walmart and Target and Best Buy and, and all these category killers like Bed Bath and Beyond. Um, you know, the, the, the last hundred years of, of retail history has been shrinking market share for local retail. And you're now starting to see the green shoots of local retail actually bouncing back. The number of independent bookstores has increased by more than 10% every year since 2011. Um, independent grocery stores are coming back. Independent pharmacies are coming back. You've got main streets all across the United States that are, that are starting to revive, um, where you've got you know, the strip malls starting to, to collapse. And the reasons for that are, first of all, the, the big box retail apocalypse is a very real thing. And you know, these, these stores collapsing, uh, mostly because they've just taken on too much debt, a bunch of private equity companies levered up and, and, and overexpanded. And so you know, these companies basically can't pay their leases um, and their interest payments. And so they're failing. That's creating white space uh, for, for smaller retailers to fill, you know, the, the, the year that I mentioned 2011, when, when independent bookstores started coming back, that was the year borders went bankrupt. But the other reason, and I think the more interesting reason is that these stores have figured out how to survive in a world where they can't offer the lowest prices and the largest assortments. Uh, they figured out how to compete with Walmart and, you know, all those big box stores that I talked about by offering differentiated experiences, by offering curated assortments, by really offering amazing customer service and, and setting themselves apart where when you walk into a local shop, you know, it's an experience. And when you hear about what Nordstrom and REI and Best Buy are trying to do to pivot and compete with Amazon uh, and compete with, you know, somebody who has lower prices, and larger assortments, it's the things local retailers have been doing for, for several decades now. Um, and so they're really well positioned in many ways to survive in, you know, this post Amazon uh, retail world. The big thing that is holding them back is the technology. It's the fact that all the innovation that's happened in retail over the course of the past 100 years has happened among big box retailers and now among online retailers. There's been very little innovation uh, among small retailers. And we think that we can use technology to level the playing field for our stores. Um, you know, we have 25,000 stores today. Uh, to put that into to context, there are 27,000 Starbucks locations um, in, in the world. Um, so that gives you a sense of the, the scale of, of our network. By the end of this year, we'll have 100,000 stores. And we think five years from now, we'll have a million stores. And when you add up all of those stores together, they are actually bigger than Amazon and Walmart put together. Uh, and when you take that scale and you take the ability of technology to help them make better buying decisions, to help them manage their inventory better, to help them allocate capital better, uh, and ultimately, I think, to help them connect with consumers, um, you've got a really, really powerful combination where, you know, I think, I, I think 10 years from now, a lot of the advantages that these that big box stores have had will, will go away. And you'll be left with, you know, consumers making a choice. Do I want to shop local uh, or, or do I want to shop at a big box store? 
And, and I think consumers are going to go with the, the community, the experience that local retailers can offer. Um, and I think we can be a big part of that. That's really, really interesting. So, so Max, you've been involved with, um, with obviously, with, with, with rocket ships, uh, leading, you know, different departments and products. Now you're actually driving your own baby, your own rocket ship. So you've seen, you've seen quite a bit on what works, what doesn't work. So I guess if you had the chance to go back and speak to your younger self, what would, that, what would be that piece of advice uh, about business that you would give to yourself and why? I think the biggest thing um, is just be patient. There were several times in my career where I think I got a little impatient. And when I think about the mistakes that I made, um, they really came down to, you know, being overeager, thinking that I knew more than I did, um, and, and trying to, to jump forward in my career, um, and, and getting ahead of my skis. And when I think about the good decisions that I made, it was when I was willing to be patient. Um, you know, I, I, I think of a couple of examples. Uh, I thought about going into starting my own company right after Bain. Um, and I was, I was convinced, um, partly by Keith that I needed to go and actually learn the trade entrepreneurship. I really do think is a craft and I think it's something that can be learned. And I think the best way to learn it is to jump on a rocket ship and see, see how, how to actually build it. Um, but that also takes patience. Um, there were definitely moments at Square where <laughs> I wanted to get out of there and I wanted to go and start my own company because that's what I've always wanted to do. Um, and I think I was really lucky to keep getting opportunities that were exciting enough and gave me enough of that entrepreneurial experience um, that I was able to stay patient. Um, another example, I think, was with the capital experience. I mentioned that you know I got capital off the ground. I wanted to be the one to build capital. I wanted capital to be my product. Um, but I realized that I wasn't ready yet. Uh, and so we recruited J. Brian Scott, who was the, the head of uh, risk at Square, who's just a brilliant guy um, and was a little further ahead of me uh, in my career. Uh, I was able to learn a lot from him. Um, and, you know, he ultimately did an incredible job of, of building capital up. Um, and I'm not sure that I, I would have been ready for that experience at that time. And I think I learned a lot from the experience of working for, for uh, JBS. And then I also had the opportunity to go and then work for Brian um, on cash and then go and work for, for Gokul at Square and at, at Caviar. And those were experiences that required patience and I think required, you know, some level of humility, I think, uh, of recognizing that I still had a lot to learn from these incredibly talented people. Um, and that would maybe be the, the, the other thing that I would add is just like seek out unbelievable people that have accomplished amazing things who you can learn a tremendous amount from. Um, and, and really the, the thing underneath all that, uh, both with the patients and the, the, the seek out amazing people is just always be learning. Um, and, and don't assume that you know anything, um, because the further along that you get in your career, the, the more you realize how little, you know, and how much you have, uh, how much you have to learn. I love it. And, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I agree with that, you know, with patience, because, we as human beings, we underestimate what we can do over time, what we can learn over time. So I think that yeah. that's, um, that's a really, really good, uh, really good pointers there. Yeah. So, so the, the last thing I'd say is that we're hiring. <laughs> and if you are interested 
uh, and working at Fair, if it's if it's something that excites you, you definitely feel free to email me. Uh, my email is max at fair.com. That's F-A-I-R-E.com. Um, yeah, please, please do feel free to reach out. Amazing. So, so, so Max, what is the, uh, what is the best way to communicate with you, for example, on, on social media? Uh, I'm on Twitter a bit, uh, Max Rhodes. Okay. Um, you can, yeah, feel free to follow me. I don't tweet much, but um, <laughs> you want to check out medium posts about, about fair, uh, that would be a good place to find them. Amazing. Alrighty. Well, Max, it has been a pleasure and an honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Alejandro. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.